0: Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you folks. Thank you very much for the music, for the inspiration from that and also for the prayer. I appreciate that. Your as well. Today I want to speak about a subject that we're probably all too familiar with, not only from observation but undoubtedly from our own personal experience. And that's the matter of conflict and control. Uh, there's no question that the whole world experiences that from day one of our existence as humanity. Um, the matter of the news is built on the whole matter of conflict and control. When you look at it, if, if we didn't have such things as conflict, there probably wouldn't such thing as news. You would, probably wouldn't be turning into the news. Good news today. Oh, that's kind of boring. We end up constantly looking for things that are kind of exciting. And it's, it's sad in a sense. Yet the reality is most of us face conflict, most of us hate it when it's involving us personally. But it can be both painful and helpful. The reality is we face conflict, whether it's at home, at workplace, Church, wherever there's people, there's going to be conflict. Charles Schultz, uh, the guy who wrote Peanuts, he said, um, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. (laughs) The reality is that this past year has certainly shown conflict, even though people are often necessarily kind of separated, as Barry brought out earlier. There's still a way of conflict that takes place in our communication, whether it be by a matter of Twitter or Facebook or whatever else. There is often the matter of conflict in hitting out and hurting one another. You know, it's said that a lot of couples who enter into marriage counseling spend a lot of the time attempting to iron out differences that deals with. Uh, raising of children or their extended families or with sexual relationships or other things like that. But the reality, when we get down to it, a lot of it, it deals with the matter of trust, spiritual differences, love, forgiveness. We like to blame things like our anger on something else or on someone else. And we think to ourselves, if this would change, more likely, well, if they would change things would be a lot better. <laughs> but it's not just our marriages, or our homes, that are wrecked by conflict. It's every human relationship and institution, including in, even in the churches. In the book of James, he has to say to us some things of vital import on our everyday living. And I'm going to share with you some thoughts from James chapter 4, the first 10 verses where he looks at the source of our conflict instead of focusing on the triggers of conflict. And he looks at the source of it with man and our conflict with God and, and the, the fact that the conflict is a result of the fall that touches every aspect of our lives. James says we can overcome by identifying the, the source of it and Focusing upon the real purpose of our lives is to purify ourselves and please God through Jesus Christ. I'm going to share with you some thoughts. Uh, Basically, uh, the first ten verses I'm going to share with you. And I'm going to read the first three verses from the New Living Testament Version. What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at, at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Jesus uses, James uses two terms in his question about relationships. Two terms, one is the term for quarrel and the other term for fights. The term for quarrels, is the word is mosh. It, in literature it talks about angry disputes. And then he also uses the term for fights, the word is polemos. In other places, it talks about actual armed conflict, warfare. So the violent campaign, that the men very violent, image. And so he uses these terms as a pair to make his question inclusive and point out very clearly that within the church, a lot of times that quarrels can lead into real terrible violent behavior maybe not physical fistfights, but basically we go to warfare with one another and things that should not be. I read one preacher's account of a sad example of a church in conflict. He said that one of the saddest phone calls he ever had received came from an elder of another church. They barely knew him, but they were searching for his help. That church was without a preacher at that time, and the Board of Elders had interviewed a man and had, asked, had voted on to recommend calling the candidate, and only one elder had descended and asked for his fellow elders to postpone the action for one week, for further consideration and prayer is what he said. The elders had agreed to that request, which seemed reasonable. However, it appeared that that dissenting elder Had used that week for other things other than meditation and prayer to begin a campaign of criticism of the candidate within the congregation and the church became so deeply divided with fears and passionate opinions but by the time the issue came before the large congregation meeting there was such rage and shouting that the elder who was in charge who had phoned the other preacher He said, I found myself wondering, are these people really Christians? Are they really believers? And he was agonizing over the division within the church and asking for counsel. Sometimes I wonder if the leaders in churches in the past could have brought in James or the other apostles to receive spiritual counsel. Would they find the advice tough to be, to deal with. We like to think of ourselves as wise, and we're quick to justify our own role in conflict. But James is exactly the type of counselor that we need. We one who will not allow us deceive ourselves, and will bring clarity to complex issues. For Christians who want to learn true spirituality, James cuts to the heart of the matter. He said. Fighting among Christians, it's more than chaos, it's more than destructive unhappiness. It becomes an outrageous evil that, that tears us apart. And yet too often we accept it complacently. I read of one church member who saw a church breaking into factions, and then they even commented cheerfully, oh, I love a good church fight. That's sad. And yet a lot of times we thrive on gossip and we thrive on things that are happening things that cripple the church's ministries and external witness for years before healing and purifications can start to happen james is not talking about loving disagreements about healthy conflicts that can be expected within people let's face it if you look back in the new testament you find that even as they walked along for about three years, that the the apostles obviously squabbled at times, and Jesus had to kind of bring them in line to teach them humility, to teach them his character by example. And James, as he writes, he says that when we fail to follow the direction of God or the example of humility that Christ gave, we end up finding ourselves following the earthly and spiritual pattern of the devil. And James calls troublesome perpetrators something very difficult. In verse 4, he says, you are adulterous people. And don't you know, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. When we find ourselves embroiled in fights with each other, we should examine what we're doing in the light of this paragraph. When we go into conflict with one another, and sometimes we couch our motives in in conflict, we we say that we're doing this out of Christian love or whatever else, but sometimes we have to examine our motives. Do we really want our way, not God's way? Do we get upset with the schemes of others don't examine our own. Do we really ask God for His direction or do we ask for Him to bless our plans? Do we ask God to help us to examine our motives. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 when he talks about coming around the Lord's table to examine yourselves as you come together. And when you don't do that, then it causes the body to be torn apart. He says, James says, you only want what will give you pleasure. Ego says, I am the greatest. Narcissism says, it's all about me. We certainly know what narcissism is, and we watched that to a large extent on the world scale in the last number of years. A person by the name of Rowan McManus um, was asked in an interview how to spot a narcissist in leadership. And he, he said this then a narcissist has a high need for praise because the world needs to be about him. They have a view that there is no one in the world who can do something better than he or she can. And a narcissist doesn't ask for help because he doesn't believe anyone else could ever solve a problem because he can't solve it, because nobody's smarter or does it better than they do. A narcissist doesn't take risks because if they fail, it'll completely violate their identity. A narcissist doesn't accept responsibility for failure because in their mind, the failure is always somebody else's fault. You never know if you're really humble, but you know if you do humble things. Your capacity increases if you remain teachable. The best indicator of character is who you long to become. Do we long to become like Christ? Selfish ambition is the source of, cru- of quarrels. It impedes success rather than promotes it. When we look to promote ourselves and our position and our authority and our prestige rather than the group, rather than the body of Christ, we become the obstacle to block. And Selfish ambition becomes the opposite of serving the needs of others. James links his thoughts back to the previous chapter. You go back to chapter 3 and you find there in verses 14 and 15 and 16, he says, but if, if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. Jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. We need to examine our motives at times, what we do, what we say. The reality is that failure to please God comes from the desire to please self. Failure to please God, our failure or the other person's or both, is the ultimate cause of all relational conflict. Whenever there is conflict, one or both parties are not pleasing God. A lot of times we want to point at the other and say, they're not pleasing God. But do we examine ourselves? Verses 4 and 5, he says, you adulterers, don't you realize friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. In the Greek, when he wrote this, the word for adulteress it's a female gender. And what he's trying to present there is the image of God as being the husband, the bridegroom. And the bride is the church. And when we start going after the ways of the world, we have become unfaithful to God. You look back in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea, God directs the prophet to marry Gomer, who becomes an unfaithful wife, who becomes involved in prostitution. And she becomes a live example of the prophet's message that God is personified as a loving husband and Israel as an unfaithful wife caught up in adultery with the world. And it's there as an example of grace an attempt to redeem and restore relationship with hope and love and, and grace. And James states metaphorically that As an adulterous love affair with the world, when we are tempted to believe we can find wealth or pleasure in the world without God, or when we believe that we can do things our way and kind of forget about what God wants. I read of a Gallup poll that surveyed evangelical Christians And the poll found, strikingly and sadly, that 80% of all evangelicals in that poll said that their Christianity did not affect the way that they live life. Not the way that they live, not the way that they talk, not the places they go, not what they do. And when that happens, is it any wonder that the church does not impact the world? And this is what James was addressing in this letter. Bitter disappointment when we become unfaithful. James says when we develop a worldly mindset, we focus on wanting material things, that our behavior conforms to the world. We want to blend blend and fit in, and we're more focused on friendship with the world than we are on our relationship within Christ, in the body of Christ, then we're in danger of spiritual adultery. Do you think that the scriptures have no meaning, he says? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. We don't ask God to answer our prayers. Or should not ask God to ask to answer our prayers for material rewards, or prestige, or power, or for only what gives us pleasure. Scripture is clear, friendship with the world is becoming an enemy with God. He goes on in verse 8, he says, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you, come near to God, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This last year we've become very familiar with the matter of washing and purifying our hands. But what about our hearts? Conflict and resolution. The hope and change lie in God's grace in our response to genuine humility. It begins with God's grace, his offer. But it has to be accepted. God gives graciously, as the scripture says. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The problem is that grace is never received by those who are too proud to accept. And so he says Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he'll come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. hope and change are found in God's grace and our response in genuine humility. Humility isn't the sense that you are nothing. It's more of a self-awareness that there's more going on in life than what is all about you. Change comes when we put God first and the welfare of others before our own interests. And here, James links back to that previous passage in chapter 3. He says, If you're wise and understand God's ways... Prove it by living an honorable life, by doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Show understanding of God's way. Honorable life does good works. Show true humility in understanding and applying God's wisdom in the way you act and interact with others. He says, wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is peace-loving, it is gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism, it's always sincere. Those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. When I thought of that, when I read that, wisdom that comes from above is peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. Go back to look at Isaiah 53. It talks about Jesus as being like the sheep before the shears is done. Does not open his mouth. Speaking of the time as Christ willingly surrendered himself there in the garden. After praying, Father, not my will, but yours. Yeah. And as they came at him with swords and and all except for conflict and possibly hoping he'd resist. He yielded himself up He went to the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, it requires genuine humility, genuine submission to the will of God for there to be peace, to put away our own desires, to follow the example of Christ. Genuine humility means to submit to God, to resist the devil, to seek purity, to exercise control over our emotions and our words, whether spoken or twittered or whatever else. leads to lifting and honoring other people and the Lord rather than ourselves. (coughs) Why do we fight? It's not because of him, because of her. It's because of us or what's within us. Couples who see what rules them, craving for affection, attention, whatever else, they can repent and find God's grace and learn how to make peace. And the same should be within the matter of the church, God's bride. We see God's word, His wisdom, properly used and we need to repent. And repentance involves self-examination of ourselves. What is our motives? What is the reality for our trying to self-justify for ourselves at times? We need to evaluate ourselves by God's standards, not by our standards. And that standard includes a matter of purity and peace and submissiveness and mercy and impartiality and sincerity and humbling one another, ourselves before one another. A good relationship model for the church is talk to each other, not about each other. We change That word repentance—that means change. It means change of mind, a change of directions, change of what we do to follow the royal law of love. The way we treat one another should be within the matter of the measure of God's love and grace. Reliance. James' message can be rather blunt and hard to swallow, but it's also one that's filled with grace. We need to acknowledge our role in conflict. We need to be able to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. We need to go and, and to talk to people that we've hurt, and that's hard. We need to be able to try and restore the sense of the bond of fellowship with the bond of love. Charles Schultz said, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. Thankfully, God doesn't look at us that way. He loved us enough to come to us through his son. He loved the world so much that he sent his only son to die for us, that's grace. To offer us forgiveness, to offer us peace, to restore the unity with him we need to follow his example of offering forgiveness and grace to all who respond and submit to him that would be briefly in prayer father god forgive us for often we fail over and over and the example of your son of his patience His forgiveness, His humility escapes us. And we need to be reminded of that over and over again of just how much of a price He paid to reunite us with you. Father, help us to, to understand and appreciate and to value the relationship that He has given to us with you. Father, help us to humble ourselves, to forgive one another. And Father, to set the example to the world that they would say, behold how they love one another, that they may know that you are the Father, the only true God, the only source of salvation. Father, as we realize we can't restore, unity or peace within this world by any means of man. Not through government, not through legislation, not through force of law. Father, help us to understand that we must accept your law of love and follow it and devote ourselves to one another and to Jesus Christ who died for us, in in whose name we pray. Okay.